James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I'm going to read it again. We're going to spend a chunk of time just on this one verse for a little bit, and then we'll move into the verses following in the time we have left tonight. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is a great verse all by itself, but if I want to take some time to show you, just like the other sections of this chapter, it also ties all together with the previous verses and sets the stage for the next verses. As I told you last time we were together, we have a tendency to look at the book of James in chunks. There's so much wisdom in the book of James that if you are wrestling with an issue, you can deal. There's a topic that or, or that topic's covered in the book of James somewhere. And we've always studied James chapter one, verses two through four separately. You know, or, you know, count all joy when you face trials. But then if we lead wisdom, we run to verses five through eight. If any of you lack wisdom and that gives us an answer about that. And what I want to show you is that James is writing a continual thought here in this letter to the Christians and, as you're going to see, some who aren't Christians, who are struggling with trials. Verses 2 through 4 say that trials and tests come to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. And that's why we should receive the trials with what? Joy. Verses 5 through 8 we've looked at shows us that because God's working out His purposes in our lives, we need God's wisdom in our trials so that we can line up our lives with His purposes. Let me say that to you again. I'm going to show you something from Romans. So if you want to start going to Romans chapter 8. Because God's working out His purposes in our lives, we need God's wisdom in our trials so we can line up our lives with His purposes. Jump over to Romans chapter 8 and look again at verse 18, and then we'll look at verses 26 through 29. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Now jump down to verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Holy Spirit, you see this capital S in your Bibles, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what we ought to pray for, as, or what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know. That for those who love God and are all things work together for, for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Look closely. Paul says the suffering of our life, you shouldn't even compare it with the glory to be revealed. If you're willing to hang on, we see, we're looking at James 1.12, blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, because when they have passed the test, They'll receive the crown of life. Now, in this life, we're going through trials. That's a part of God's purposes. The rain does fall on the just and the unjust. Yet at the same time, there's a different level of trials for Christians. We will go through certain trials that non-Christians won't because of our relationship with Him. That's why a couple of times in the Bible it talks about, we're, oh, for His sake, we're given over to death. Because we're connected with Him. Jesus Himself said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. You should, un you should not be surprised at the stuff that's going to happen to you because you're in me. But Paul says, what we're about to receive in reward down the road, because remember, he had gotten to see it. He said, it's not even worth comparing. So be steadfast. Hang on. Finish the race well. We're going to see that in a little bit. 
At the same time, he then goes on and he says this. He says, but we're not left alone in this. The Holy Spirit within us knows the purposes of God and why he's allowing, allowing these specific trials. And he's been praying for us already in line with God's purposes. And so that's why we need to, in our trials, understand, God, you love me. You're for me. You've already given your, your son for me. So if, you've already, if, you're, not, if you're willing to give, us, give me your son and have him die for me, how will you not also with him give me whatever else I need? You're not mad. You've already taken care of all my sin. I'll not be condemned because I'm in Christ. This trial is not because of my sin. This trial is because of my relationship with you. I need wisdom, though. You have a purpose in this, and I need to know what it is, or at least how to line myself up with what you're trying to accomplish. Get my heart lined up with your heart for what I'm going through. We then saw in the verses that followed in verses 9 through 11 that both poverty and wealth are trials. And which one's the harder test? Wealth by a long shot. He's actually blessed those who are poor to be rich in faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it's really hard to have faith when you have money, because if you've got money, you don't need to rely on God. Now, it's not impossible for people to be wealthy and be a believer, but the Bible says that that's a harder test. And then he says this, blessed is the one who passes the test because their perseverance is the te of the test is sure proof of their salvation. That's what we're going to look at, because we're going to talk about tonight passing the test of faith and passing individual little trials and tests of temptation. And there's a difference. What I, when, when the Bible says that passing the test of faith, it's talking about people that truly are saved, and in the trial they don't walk away. When, the, when it's all said and done, even though we don't understand all that God's doing, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're not going to walk away. We're not going to fall away. We're going to continue on. And that's passing the test of faith. There are individual little tests that we get along the way, temptations, and we don't always pass those. But there's a difference between passing a temptation every now and then and passing the test of faith. But that'll become clear later on in our study. So he then promises what to those who pass the test? Go back to James chapter 1, verse 12. The crown of life, if, I want you to also write it down in your notes this way. It could be translated this way also. The crown which is life. The crown of life could also be translated the crown which is life. All right. The crown, well, go to John chap, James, sorry, John chapter 5, verse 24. Let's, let's go there real quick. John chapter 5, verse 24. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus is speaking and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Don't miss that. A lot of people think that when we die, we finally get to experience eternal life. No, if you're born again from the moment that God forgave your sin, washed you clean, sealed you with his spirit, your eternal life has already begun. Actually, if you die physically, you won't die. Physically, your body may go back to the dust of the earth, but he who lives and believes in me will never die. You've passed from death to life. You are going to go right into his presence. But don't miss this, though. Even though we've been given eternal life, are we experiencing the fullness of that eternal life yet? No, because we're still here and we're still in these bodies. And we have to learn 
what God's purposes are for not only saving us, but leaving us here in these bodies until that day that we are glorified. Why doesn't he just save us and we go to heaven? Well, he has a reason why he leaves us here. And that's multifaceted. And we'll get into some of that over our study of the book of James. But we'll touch on some tonight as well. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verses 9 through 11. Jesus is speaking to the church in Smyrna. In Revelation 2 verses 9 through 11, he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are of synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful. Look at this. Unto death. Some of you are going to die in this trial. And I will give you what? The crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, that's an interesting thing. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, the Bible tells us what that is. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 6. It says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Now, it doesn't fully answer the question yet, but it will. Stick with me. But it does give us a little bit more information. There's a first resurrection. The Bible calls it the resurrection of the righteous. At the end of the tribulation period, those who have already gone in the church age to be with the Lord until the tribulation is over are going to come back with him when he comes. And those who have been put to death for their faith in during the tribulation period, the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints will also come to life at that time and come live in the millennial kingdom on the earth. That's the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. But there is a second death. Go jump. You're in chapter 20 still. Jump down to verses 14 and 15. At the end of the great white throne judgment, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I think you can answer the question now. What's the second death? The lake of fire. For those who are in Christ who've been given the crown of life and will also be given the crown of life. We're going to talk about that. We're given the crown of life and we will be given the crown of life. We, well, let me put it to you this way. We're given life. We will be given the crown of life. I'll explain that in just a little bit. But for those of us who are in Christ who have been given eternal life and one day we will receive the crown of life. We don't have to fear the second death, which is the lake of fire. We're, we're going to be with Christ. We're going to be a part of the first resurrection of the righteous and go live with him in the millennial kingdom on the earth. After the millennial kingdom is over, remember Satan's going to be released from the pit and he's going to tempt those who are on the earth. And at that time, all the wicked are going to come to fight against Jesus in Jerusalem and he's going to destroy them. And all the wicked are the ones who are going to be going before the great white throne judgment. Christians won't go before that. We're going to go before the Bema seat, which, again, will come up in just a little bit. But the great, the great white throne judgment, all the wicked dead will be brought before the throne and they'll be judged according to everything they've ever done that were recorded in the books. Well, you know why? 
because they rejected God's payment for all their sins, and therefore they're accountable for all their sins, and everything they've ever done, even every idle word and thought, was written down. And they committed the even greater sin of not believing in Jesus, and their name's not in the book of life, and they're cast into the lake of fire. For those of us who are in Christ, our eternal life has already begun. We've passed from death to life. But there is coming a crown of life. Now, that crown is actually a picture from their Greek games, if you will. You know, they would run marathons or compete in the games to receive a wreath, a, a laurel wreath. Actually, the Bible talks about that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He says, you all know how the games work. The athletes all compete to get that prize. In that situation, only one gets it. We're running to individually get our reward, our crown. That's actually, it was called the Bema Seat. And that's where they would go and get their reward for finishing the race and winning the race. What, what did Paul say at the end of his life? He said, I've fought the, fought the fight. I finished the race. Now, we're going to look at that verse in a second, though, because he doesn't call it the crown of life there. He calls it something else. And we're going to deal with that. But Paul said this. They all compete for a wreath that's perishable. It's going to rot away. We compete for one that is imperishable. But it's also called sometimes the crown of righteousness. Go to 2 Timothy, that passage I just referenced where Paul talks about the end of his life. I've heard some preachers and teachers say, well, there's different crowns. There's a crown of righteousness. There's a crown of life. There's a crown of this, that, and the other. I honestly think in my study of the scriptures that there's one crown that's your reward but it is all the different things that it's called are all descriptive of what comes with your salvation. And I'll explain that in just a second. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He says this. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul said, I have run the race that he had for me. I've lived what he wanted me to do. I've let him live through me. And I know that I'm going to heaven, but I also know that I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness. Well, Peter also called it the crown of glory. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's, un, uh, that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of what? Glory. Well, we're having, having a little problem here. I only got one head. So am I going to get a crown of life? Am I going to get a crown of righteousness? Am I going to get a crown of glory? Actually, I think all of these descriptive terms, and there's more. I'm not going to bomb you with all of them. I think they're all descriptive of, well, let me just put it to you as, as my notes have it. These are all imperishable, and they're descriptive of the different characteristics of our salvation. There's actually a passage of Scripture that puts this all together. Go to 1 Peter. You're in 1 Peter. But Jack, back up to chapter 1 and look at verses 3 through 9 and see if everything we've just looked at doesn't all kind of come together. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The same thing we just heard Peter call the crown of glory. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. By the way, there are people that the outcome of their faith was they want a better marriage. There are some people that the outcome of their faith is that they want God to bless them. As you're going to see in just a little bit, these are the people that don't pass the test. You see, if you want to become a believer, oh, I'll believe in Jesus because I, I, if I believe in Jesus, he'll fix my marriage. Or I'll believe in Jesus because he'll give me a better job. Or I'll believe in Jesus because I can win the election. Fire insurance. No. The outcome of your faith should simply be the salvation of your soul. Does God care about your marriage? Yes. Does he want you to have a, a, a job that pays your bills? All those things? Yes. But that should not be why you're following Jesus. Your outcome of your faith should be salvation of your soul. And those who have been, well, the outcome of their faith is the salvation of their souls. The Bible says that they have received an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being shielded by God's power through faith. Oh, for a little while, we may have had to suffer grief in different kinds of trials, but these trials have come to prove what? Your faith is genuine and to result in praise and glory and honor when, the, when, when we see Jesus face to face. That's why when we who finish the race, who are in Christ, we've already been given eternal life. But at that moment, we will, at the finish of our race, receive the crown of life, which is also the crown of righteousness and the crown of glory to the praise of the Lord. Folks, it's getting gloriously dark. Would you not agree that it, things are getting dark? It's getting gloriously dark. 
I'm a weirdo, I know, but actually I'm not because I'm just peculiar, as the Bible says. I believe that the Bible said it was going to be like this right before the return of Jesus Christ. And those of us who have our goal and our eyes set on Jesus and the salvation of our souls, we will finish the race. Blessed are those who are steadfast. They don't go anywhere under trial. Because after you have passed the test, oh, and there's lots of tests, you will receive the crown of life or the crown of righteousness, which he's not going to give just to Paul. But how did Paul say? But also to all who have longed or loved his what? His appearing. I'm looking forward to the day when I get out of this body and I go be with Jesus. But there's something in our previous verses that God showed me in my study. Go back to James that I had never seen before. And I've been teaching the Bible for 40 years. As I was just praying over this passage and looking at how it all tied together, God opened my eyes to something in these verses that I just we just kind of recap tonight. There's something in our previous verses here in James that all tie together into Jesus's teaching about the parable of the soils. All right. You remember how Jesus told the parable of the soils and how some seed fell on the hard path, some seed fell on the rocky soil, some seed fell on the thorny soil, some seed fell on the good soil. Well, go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Put a bookmark in James 1. We're coming back to it, I promise. But go to Matthew 13 and look at verses 18 through 23 where Jesus explains the parable. Now, I told you to put a bookmark or a finger in James 1 because we are coming right back to it before I finish Matthew 13. We're going to go back and forth here, so be ready. Matthew 13, starting in verse 18, Jesus explains the parable of the soils. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Stop. The seed that fell on the path, the hard path, where the birds came and took it away, Jesus said, this is when the seed comes to an individual, they don't understand it, and the enemy snatches it away. But let me ask you a question. According to Jesus, where was that seed sown? In their heart. Jump to James 1, look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Is he talking to believers or unbelievers here? Both. He's not talking to believers in the sense that they need to be saved, but he's also saying to the believers, let the word take root, I mean, and really produce all God wants. But he's also talking to people that aren't saved and saying, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Folks, listen to me very carefully. Everybody hears. There's no one in the world who has never heard in some way, shape, fashion, or form. We've laid this out over and over. We did our study of the book of Romans, how all without excuse, because God's revealed himself to creation. 
They all know he exists. Chapter 2, he put his law in their hearts, whether they ever heard his written law or not, with who the conscience that he gave us. Throw them their lawbreakers because they go against even what they think is right and wrong. And then he makes an interesting statement in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. We've sat around in Sunday school wasting too much time asking, well, what about those who never hear? There's no such person according to the scripture. Well, Jim, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 24, verse 15, that this gospel will be, sorry, 14, this gospel will be preached in the whole world and then the end will come. So the gospel hasn't been preached to the whole world yet. No, no, no. If you read your Bibles, you'll know that the Bible is very clear. In Colossians 1:23, Paul says this, this gospel, which has been preached in all creation. Romans chapter 10, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Then he says in verse 18, have they not heard? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. Folks, to say that there's parts of the globe that haven't gotten the gospel yet is to say that there's people that have never had an opportunity to be saved. And that's not what God's word says. He's not willing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do we all get the same amount of gospel preached to us? No, we're going to be judged according to how much has been revealed, but everyone has enough to respond. And he said the seed was sown on the path in their hearts, but they didn't understand it. Satan came and took it away. But now keep reading back in Matthew 13. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Trials. Remember, the trials are going to be used to prove whether or not your faith is real. There's lots of people that say they believe. There's lots of people that might even have walked an aisle and got baptized. But then mama died. And I begged God that mama wouldn't die. And he didn't, he didn't answer my prayer. And they walk away. Or she, she left me and, and she was my whole life. And so God's not there for me when I needed him. And, or I didn't get the job that I wanted or whatever. You just name it. They're going to, something's going to happen that makes them say, well, I thought I believed, but I don't. Oh, but look at the next soil. As for what was verse 22, sown on the, among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of what? Riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Does this not sound like James chapter 1? The trials, the wealth, and blessed are those who have stood the test. As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and it yields in some people's case a hundredfold, others 60 and another 30. Folks, some don't pass the test of faith. Some walk away or fall away because of hardship. Others are lured away. That's an important word we're going to see in our next verses in James. Some are lured away by the cares of this world and wealth. Only the truly saved will pass the test and receive the crown, which is life. All right. Now we're going to go to one more passage and then we're going to come back to James and pick up in verse 13. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll start in verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it 
and produces a crop useful to those for who, whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Look at what the Hebrew writer says. The rain falls on all the earth, and some soil responds well and produces a cultivated fruit and crops. Others just produce thorns and thistles. They all receive the same rain, but how the soil responded to it will determine whether or not it received it properly. Do you understand? Oh, did you also catch, though, that the good soil was cultivated? There's really no such thing as good soil. You do know that, right? There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. In order for any of us to respond appropriately to the seed, our soil, the soil of our hearts has to be cultivated. If you, any of you are gardeners, and you, you don't just go out there in your dirt and just throw in the seed. What do you do first? You take the hoe and you break up the fallow ground and you break it up with maybe a rototiller or whatever and you churn the soil, but you don't throw your seed out there yet. You then go through and you get the rocks out. You get the thorns out and the weeds out. And then you plant. The Holy Spirit's job is to prepare our hearts to show us our need, to show us our sin, all that. He uses the law. He uses the spirit. He uses our consciences. He uses all these ways to prepare us to receive the seed. And we need to be faithful to respond to what God's done in our hearts and what God's done in our lives. But the rain falls everywhere. And how you respond will show whether or not you've drunk the rain to receive a reward and a blessing or whether or not you're in, in the end to be burned. Now let's go back to James chapter 1 and deal with verses 13 and following. Some of the trials that we're going to have are actually temptations. Some of the trials are actually temptations. And this is what he says now in verses 13 and following. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We're going to spend the rest of our time tonight breaking these verses down because there's a lot here that Christians really need to understand because most Christians are totally oblivious to what's going on here. And that's why many of us lose the battle when it comes to temptations and, and tests in that manner. As we go through these trials that God is orchestrating for his purposes. You remember how we saw earlier the Holy Spirit helps us pray in line with the purposes of God because of the, in, in the suffering that he allows in our lives. As we go through these trials that God is orchestrating for his purposes, we must realize that we cannot blame God if we fail them. You say, oh, I would never do that. <laughs> yeah, you would. Actually, man's been doing that since Genesis chapter 3. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 3, and let me show you something kind of interesting. In Genesis 3... Verses 8 through 13. Adam and Eve have been tempted by Satan. They've fallen to the temptation. 
They've eaten. And they, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, before we get to the, his answer, let me ask you a question. Why does God ask Adam a question that God already knows the answer to? Very good. He wants him to confess. Confession is not you starting the conversation. The word confess is the Greek word homologeo, which means to agree or to say the same thing. If I agree with Butch, he started the conversation. Do you understand? He said something and I agree with him. That's what the word confession means. God says, did you eat from the tree you weren't supposed to eat from? And he's supposed to confess and agree and say, you're right. I didn't do what you said, and I did eat from that tree. That's confession. That's why the lost person has to say, God, you're right, you're holy, and I'm not, and I need a Savior. That's confession. When we as believers sin, because we still sin, and the Spirit of God convicts us, we should not come up with excuses as to why it happened. We need to confess and agree with God and say, you're right, I was in the wrong. I even knew better, but I tuned you out. But look at what Adam says. He's, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So hang on for a second. He not only blames her, he blames God. In other words, I was fine here all by myself. I didn't ask for this. I, I woke up one day and she was here. And, and, and if God was wanted to, he could have said, uh, I still remember that day myself. And I remember when you woke up, you were kind of happy about it. Because he had been used by God to name all the animals. And God put within Adam a desire for one, someone like him, because as, as I jokingly said over the years, he probably thought to himself, even the hippo's got a girlfriend. Where's mine? And then when he wakes up and the, God gives him Eve, he said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. And he was thought was awesome. But when he sinned, he said, if you hadn't put me in this situation. He's blaming God. Oh, she does the same. She goes, no, no, no. And you'll say, no, she just blamed the snake. Keep listening. Says the woman. He said, the woman you gave with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So it looks like she's just blaming the snake. But she's also blaming God. Do you know how I know this? Who allowed the snake to get in the garden? You ever think about that for a minute? The Garden of Eden. And God allows Satan to go into that garden. Satan's already had his fall at this point. He allows Satan to go into that garden and tempt him. So she's not only blaming the snake, she's blaming God. Folks, the Bible's clear that you cannot go through a trial or a temptation without God's approval first, because he's ultimately in control of everything. Actually, if you go back to Matthew chapter four, don't go there. But if you go look at it later on, right after Jesus's baptism, Jesus was led by who into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, by the spirit. 
You know, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, where we've been taught to pray our Father who art in heaven, later on in verse 13, he teaches us to say, lead us not into temptation, but if you choose to, deliver us from the evil one. Folks, this is going to get deeper than maybe some of us can handle tonight, but let me just say this simple thing. Part of the reasons for the tests and the temptations that God's going to allow in your life is to drive you to him. Not so that you would fight Satan yourself, but that you would actually submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. We fight by running to Jesus, not by going to try to fight against Satan. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says it this way. No temptation has seized you, but such is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way for you to escape. Sounds like God's kind of active in my temptation. Yes, he is, but he's not tempting. He can't be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. But he also knows how Satan works and he will use Satan as his instrument. Remember how in our study of Daniel, how often God called Nebuchadnezzar my servant? Now, was Nebuchadnezzar accountable for the stuff he did to Israel? Yes, the Bible showed us that. Yet at the same time, God knew what a wicked dude Nebuchadnezzar was, and he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do his wicked deeds for his, God's purposes. And in the same way, the Bible says all authority has been given to Jesus. Since he's died on the cross and risen from the dead, all authority has been given to him. Yet right now, Satan is still the ruler of this world, is he not? For a season, he's still allowed to do certain things. He's not free to do whatever he wants. Actually, again, I'm just going to, you want to write this down and double check me in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Job's 1, 6 through 12, and then 20 through 22. Job 1, 6 through 12, and then 20 through 22, and Job 2, 1 through 10. You'll see that the angels appear before God, and Satan has to come with him. Why? He's a created being. He's an angel. And God says to Satan, he says, what you been up to? And his answer is, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. Well, 1 Peter tells us that he goes to and fro throughout the earth for what? Looking for someone to devour. And God says, have you noticed Job? And Satan says, yeah, I've seen Job, but you've put this hedge of protection around him. I can't touch him. The only reason he worships you is because you've protected him from me. God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you do what you do, but I'm going to set the parameters. You can't touch him. And what does Satan do? Kills all of his family, takes all of his stuff, and leaves him only him and his wife. But yet Job responds amazingly. He says, naked I came into the world, naked I returned. And he praised the Lord and worshiped God. Chapter 2 comes, the angels come before God again. And God says to Satan, what have you been up to? Again, going to and fro the other. And God again says, have you noticed Job? And Satan says, the only reason he responded that way is because you wouldn't let me touch him skin for skin. You let me touch him and he'll curse you to your face. God says, all right, here are the parameters. You can do what you do. But you can't kill him. And Satan sends these horrible, horrible, painful sores and boils to the point that you would want to wish to die. And then his wife comes and says what? Curse God and die. Who's talking through it right now? Oh, yeah. You know how Peter said to Jesus, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He knows who's working through him at that time. But listen. Satan could do nothing without the permission of the Father. Folks, when Jesus walked on the earth, 
He not only was human, he was also God. And the demons, when they saw physical Jesus, acted differently than the humans who saw physical Jesus. Did they not? The demons would freak out and say, we know who you are. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? If you are born again and you have Jesus living within you, you walk on this planet with the demons knowing full well who's right there. And they can do nothing to you unless he permits. Therefore, if you're a child of God and you're going through a temptation, he's allowed it. He set the parameters, but he's allowed it for his purposes. So Satan has his purposes. God has his. And we need to learn, first off, you can't blame God that this temptation or this trial's come. No, but he also has a purpose and a plan. We also must know and realize that when we're tempted to sin, it comes from where? Ah, we want to say Satan, but it's not. Go back to James chapter 1. Look at verses, verse 14, I think it is. Yes. Look at this, James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured, remember that word? Lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You don't want sin to fully grow, folks. That's why you got to keep a short account. That's why you want to keep a sensitive heart. It's in all of us. That's why in Romans chapter 7, Paul says... The things I want to do, I don't. Things that I don't want to do, I do. He said, it's no longer me doing it. It's sin living in me, but it's still there, and I'm still accountable for it. He says, in my inner being, I want to do God's law. Yet I got this problem. My flesh is here too, and it doesn't want to do the law of God. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Well, the answer he gives, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, who gives us the victory. So, folks, we need to understand that there are going to be trials. There are going to be temptations. Some of us have within us a desire to do things that don't line up with Scripture. Are we going to come up with ways to get around it and say, well, God says it's really okay? Did God really say that it was wrong? Or are we going to admit, God, your word is true? And I have this desire within me, but I desire more to submit myself to you. And this is actually, this temptation that I have has given me an opportunity to show you that I choose you. And not my flesh. And not the enemy. I don't know how many of us have ever, ever thought about it, because we get so focused on the battle. I don't want to drink, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to whatever. And we get focused on that battle, and we forget this is an opportunity to worship. This is an opportunity to worship. Lord, I need help. I prayed because you taught me to pray. Don't lead me into temptation. Didn't that what Jesus prayed in the garden? Father, if there's any way we don't do this, I'm for it. You can, if you can take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will but yours. What's the second part of that prayer in Matthew 6, 13? Lead us not into temptation, but if you choose to, what? Deliver us from the evil one. You said that this temptation that has seized me is 
common to man. I'm not the only one that's struggling with this temptation. There's others. And you will not allow me to be tempted with more than I'm able to bear. It feels like more than I'm able to bear, but your word says it isn't, so we can have victory here. And you've also promised a way to escape. I'm looking for that door. I'm looking for the trap door. I'm looking for your phone call, whatever. However you want to do this, Lord, I'm turning to you right now. I need your victory. And we will begin to learn how to become more righteous, more sanctified. And we're already righteous and declared righteous, but our outward living of it, our righteousness will be seen more. I'm going to make a statement that we're going to break down in more detail next week when we come back together. As we learn what James is teaching here, you will never become sinless. Never. Until we get out of these bodies. That's why Paul said, I find it a law to be at work. Even though in my inner being I delight in the law of God, my flesh is right there not wanting to do it. You will be struggling with temptation till the day you die. You want proof? Was Jesus pretty much as close as anybody's ever going to get to the Father? And in the last hours of his life, he was still tempted to not go to the cross. Correct? Well, if Jesus is going to be tempted, you and I are going to be tempted. You will never become sinless. But listen closely. The Bible does say, though, that you will sin less. You'll have more victories, less losses in your struggle against sin. But in order to have victory in our temptations by yielding to the Spirit of God within us to give us the victory, we need to know where the problem lies and how the victory is won. Go to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter two, look at verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now we need to stop here for a second and clarify. When he says don't love the world or the things in the world, he's not talking about movies and bowling and stuff like that. The Bible actually tells us that God's given us these things to enjoy. Is sex sin? No, it's been designed by God if you do it within God's design for sex. One man, one woman in the confines of marriage. It, and it, God even says, do it and do it a lot. It's a good thing. Is eating a sin? No. But you can sin by taking something God's design and go outside of God's design and overeat. I could go on and on. But no, God's given us this world and life to enjoy. When the Bible talks about loving the things of the world, it's talking about what he just listed here. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The whole attitude of living for self and just getting pleasure for pleasure's sake. No, everything we need, everything we do, we need to do by faith. Anything that's not done by faith is sin. As you enjoy whatever it is you enjoy, is the Spirit of God and the Word of God saying that this is in line with His will for your life? If it is, enjoy it. If it's not, and you're convicted and your conscience is pricking you, don't do it. Anything not done by faith is sin. So we need to understand that when it talks about the things of this world, we, we are living in a world that is pulling us away in all areas, all the time. That's why it would help us a lot to kind of curtail 
how much we take in from the world and carefully run it through the filter of Scripture when we do. Again, we're not going to turn it into a law where you only can watch so many hours of TV a week and all this stuff. You let the Spirit of God guide you there, but be careful how, what you take in because the eye is the lamp of your soul. And if your eye is dark, your whole soul will be dark. But go now to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. First Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Look at what Peter says. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What did I say was one of the greatest reasons for why God allows trials? To drive us to what? To him. To drive us to him. That's one of the main. There's lots of reasons. But the biggest first and foremost is that we would run to him. Father, I need you. Well, I always need you. But what I'm going through right now has reminded me <laughs> I need you. So in the same way, we need to keep in mind that we have an enemy who's out there looking for people to devour. He won't, he won't come after me unless God's allowed. But if he's, God's allowed him, God has a purpose. And we need to keep that in mind. And as we deal with this battle, that's why Ephesians 6, we'll get into that more next week. Ephesians 6 talks, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Folks, you're in a battle you cannot win. You're fighting against people that are far greater than you, beings that are far greater than you. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And daily, we have to renew our minds to the fact that this is going on. But rest in the fact that you're a child of God. He's in control. He loves you. And he'll use the shaping for his purposes. Now, Peter, though, is the one who wrote just what we read right here. Look again. Who wrote, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Who wrote that? Peter. This is Peter. All right? Do you think Peter might have had some experience with the... Roaring lion. Go back to Luke 22. Now, this is going to be important for us. I want you to see something here because you're immediately going to go, wait a minute. He didn't pass the test. Luke 22. Look at verses 31 through 34. Jesus is speaking to all the disciples, but he starts the conversation by calling to Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. By the way, those, both of those yous are plural. It's talking about all the disciples. But then he says, but I have prayed for you. Some of your translations say Simon again. I prayed for you, Simon. That, that third Simon is not in the original text, but it's been added by some Bibles to help you understand that you is singular. So Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. But Simon, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. Look at what he says. 
that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, because you're going to fall, strengthen your brothers. Peter says, Lord, you don't know anything. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 Jim, Jim, you said earlier, passing the test is proof of our salvation. Peter failed the test. Peter denied the Lord. Doesn't the Bible say if we deny him, he'll deny us? If we don't, if we deny him before men, he'll deny us before the Father in heaven. Listen closely, though. Peter never said he's not the Christ. Peter just said, I, I, I never met him. And look back at what Jesus prayed. He said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Folks, have there been times that the Spirit of God might even have kind of nudged you to tell somebody about him? Did you say, talk to those people every time? Yeah, me neither. Thank God that's not what it means to pass the test of faith. Passing the test of faith is continuing in the faith even though we fail a trial or a temptation here and there. Opportunities that he gives us. This same Peter, even though he had denied the Lord in the sense of saying, I never met him. And by the way, if you read the scriptures, you'll see when it says he cursed, what it means is this. He didn't say a bad word. What he said was, I swear to God, never met the guy. Pretty serious stuff. But Jesus says, uh, when you've come back, strengthen the brothers. Peter says, I'm not going to go anywhere, so you don't need to pray for me in that way. Oh, the Holy Spirit's praying for you, Peter, and along the purposes of the God, and you don't even know what to pray for because you think you're fine and you're not where you think you are, but you're going to find out more about yourself in this, and it'll actually be good for you in the long run. And he, let me just chase this real quick. We've got five minutes, but we can do this. When Jesus first meets Peter, his name is what? Simon. And if you go back and look at that account, he'll say, you are Simon. One day you will be Peter. One day you're going to be a new creation. Then later on in Matthew 16, he says, who do people say that I am? They list all these names. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not opened your eyes. My father's opened your eyes. And I say that you are now Peter. And on your profession of your faith, I'm going to build my church. But now... After he's called him, now you're Peter, he calls him by his old name again. Simon, Simon. Why? Because even though he's the new creation, he's going to look like the old guy for a little while, is he not? And folks, let me tell you, I don't know what my new name is, but I've looked like the old guy a few times, even though I'm born again. And Peter says, you don't know. I, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to go away. I don't need to return. I'm going nowhere. I'm willing to go to prison and death. And I love what, Peter, what Jesus does next. He says, I tell you, Peter. Do you see it? I tell you, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you even know me three times. He called him by his new name when he told him how he was going to fail. Why? Because he who began the good work and you will finish it. And he goes, I've already said you're the new man and you're the new creation. 
And even though you're going to look like you haven't done too well for a little bit, I know you will pass the test of faith. And does he not only pass the test of faith, this same Peter stands up at Pentecost and preaches to Jerusalem and says, This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Then a couple chapters later, he's standing before the exact same Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death. And he says, This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And when he died, he was crucified just like Jesus. But he said, I don't I don't want to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. I'm not worthy. Crucify me upside down. He passed the test of faith. Will we fail individual trials and tests? Yes. But I'm going to ask you, are you going to pass the test of faith? Are you going to finish the race and receive the crown, which is life, righteousness, glory, we're going to deal next week when we come back together on the difference between sinning and practicing sin. There's a difference. The Bible's very clear that we all sin. And if anyone says they don't sin, they lie and the truth is not in them. Yet, for those of us who are in Christ, we will not and cannot make a practice of sinning because of the Spirit of God within us. And I'm going to deal with that in great detail next week. But let me just say to you this way. God will make sure you don't make a practice of sinning. One, because of the spirit of God within you, you can't because it just doesn't feel good and you don't like it. Or two, as a Christian, if you get to the point where you're starting to like it, he's going to take you home. There is sin unto death. We're going to talk about that next week. You will not make a practice of sinning if you're truly born again. But if you make a practice of sinning and, and you're okay with it, you might want to double check and make sure your election is sure. Make sure you really know him and that you're going to pass the test. And so, folks, let me encourage you with this word again. Blessed is he who is steadfast in the trial. For after we have passed the test, we will receive the crown of life. One day, do you know that the Bible says that Jesus himself is going to be giving you a crown at the end of your race? Don't compare how much you've done to everybody else. Some seed produces hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Don't worry about that. You run the race marked out for you. Some of your races are going to be longer than others. Some are going to be living less time and others are going to be a little longer time. Don't worry about how long and all you've done. Just keep your eyes on Jesus, and one day he himself will take a crown and put it on your head. That's an amazing thought. Can't wait to share more with you. I'll do that next week. Love you. Thanks for coming.